Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 42, Understanding Lex Luthor. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love The Man of Steel and who are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, it's always darkest before the dawn. We talk about an approach to criticism, Superman's status quo and strategy, and we try to understand Lex Luthor's motivations and machinations. This podcast dives deep into the Justice League universe to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films that make up the Justice League universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Long time no see. It's finally here. I've seen it seven times. I love the film. But we're going to start with a discussion about an approach to criticism. And then we'll get into some Batman v Superman topics. This episode assumes that you've seen the movie. If not, I wholeheartedly believe that you have to see the film for yourself to be an informed part of the discussion. Honestly, probably more than once because it's such a densely laden film that's intentionally challenging in places and impossible to completely take in with just one viewing. There is is a visceral level to this film, but I think most of its merit lies underneath that. I've spent so much time seeing this film repeatedly, which meant no time to compose the show, and I'm honestly overwhelmed by the potential topics for discussion. I mean, you're talking about a person who spent four plus hours talking about a four-minute tornado scene. And with this film, I'm at a loss where to begin. I completely sympathize with Lex stuttering to a stop because his mouth doesn't have the bandwidth to keep up with his thoughts during the fundraising speech. There's a thousand different things that I want to talk about at length, but I can't imagine having the time or the commitment to do so. I want a strategy, but I've yet to settle on one because there's just so much that's threaded back and forth and spins off into tangents. Tackling it still eludes me. For Man of Steel episodes were basically either topical, commentary, or news, yet over a year later we haven't even fully covered the first act, and now we've got hours of additional content to consider and to break down. And I'm not even sure that I should do a systematic defense of Batman v Superman. I mostly love what's in the film. I love the Superman story, I love the Batman story, I adore the emotional and thematic journey, but I think there's issues with the Batman v Superman story and perhaps what isn't in the film. Right now, I'm conflicted about the film, and that's okay. It has some of the most profoundly exceptional, emotional, thematic, symbolic, referential, philosophical, and artistic layers, which have exceeded my imagination, hopes, and dreams, while simultaneously it has some confoundingly frustrating parts, which in my hubris seem easily fixed. And after so many viewings, I'm past being infatuated and infuriated, but settled into what the film is to me now. With Man of Steel, I enjoyed it immensely from the outset, and a year afterwards, I found it nearly impeccable or bulletproof in many areas of common criticism. With Batman v Superman, I was exhilarated and troubled nearly immediately. While the expression of criticism is overblown, I understand it more here, which again is okay. I love a ton of works and genres which don't survive heightened scrutiny, and your taste doesn't need to be defended or justified. Yet one of the reasons I adore Man of Steel 
appeal is because I'm sincere in the conviction that it really holds up well under examination, and that appeals to my tastes. So I'm tireless in defending Man of Steel, but I get tired and a little exhausted thinking about defending Batman v Superman, and I have my doubts about whether it's worth it. And yet that internal struggle and debate is exactly one of the reasons I love Batman v Superman, and I find its Superman story so compelling. I'm okay with feeling conflicted and seeking. To me, it's exciting and interesting to dive into confronting works to deal with a matrix of new information and try to find points of reconciliation or insight when or if possible. Wrestling with a thesis, faith, or philosophy is intellectually stimulating and rewarding. At the same time, I'm only human. I'm biased towards wanting my theories to be confirmed, my faith rewarded, or to derive answers from musing upon, analyzing, and chewing. And so far, that's been remarkably rewarding in some areas, and I find myself stymied and frustrated in others. At times, I'm thrilled and engaged at the puzzle, and other times, I'm maddened that any such piecing together should even occur. Maybe another way to put it, most criticism starts with the superficial dissection that goes on the attack without working out the why. Critics immediately have the instinct to think that they can rewrite the film more sensibly without a full comprehension of the film's intentions. We'll get into more concrete examples later when we talk about Lex, but to me, the correct approach isn't to lock down positions, but to propose theories, and then break down the film to see if they hold up or not. And that means I don't know if they will pan out. Is there a secret reason, a logical motive, a thematic truth that explains this or illuminates that? I'm uncertain, which is better than working backwards from the conclusion. Those diamond absolutes. Let's be careful not to conflate the two meanings of criticism or just favor the easier kind. Criticism can mean the expression of adverse or disapproving comments or judgment. In other words, approaching a work looking for flaws, how to tear it down or apart, seeking to judge right from the outset. And to be fair, this film's structure invites this in a certain sense. Because at least two of the point of view characters, Batman and Lex Luthor, approach Superman from this kind of criticism. They're looking for fault, looking to judge, and if they are the audience's way into the film, they might find themselves in a critical and judgmental mindset. And on the other end of that, Superman is introspective and the recipient of that criticism. So even if he's the audience's way into the film, they may find themselves feeling criticized or criticize themselves. And that's giving the audience the benefit of the doubt as empathetic. If they feel nothing for any of these characters, then this form of fault-finding criticism is even easier to engage in. However, the second meaning of criticism is the analysis, explanation, and interpretation of a work. In other words, approaching something attempting to further understanding and appreciation, to be informative and to build the audience up rather than tear down the work and brush past its merits. If you've enjoyed this show, you know that I'm all about this second form of criticism, which can dive deeply into Batman v Superman with a wealth of subjects to study, and potentially, in time, the judgments and the troubles will pass, and I can and will love this film without reservation. But I'm not there now, and I don't need to be. There are different, valid approaches to a challenging work. You can surrender or you can engage. Surrender is what people say when they ask you to turn off your brain or suspend your disbelief or say that it's just a movie. And to me, that's generally my approach to comics. Any fan of The Flash knows that to enjoy him, you have to let go. 
Attempting to rein in his feats and powers with logical consistency is impossible, so it's reasonable to relax that metric in evaluating a series of Flash stories. Surrender is a way to get right into the merits of a work, without getting mired in metrics it never endeavored to master. The Death of Superman and The Dark Knight Returns are not perfect stories, yet they were both hugely impactful and worthy of study regardless. Well, instead of surrender, another approach is engagement. Engagement is a muscle that we rarely exercise when challenged, so it can be exhausting, uncomfortable, or incomprehensible for some. And so instead, we reflexively rely on the far easier fault-finding and try to equate that as equal interaction with the work. Yeah, it takes effort to nitpick a work within an inch of its life, but it's far harder and more meaningful to engage. Believe me, wanting to rewrite, edit, or quote-unquote fix this film is absolutely the easy impulse. I'm a susceptible as any, and I want to spring forth with my mental checklist of errors and edits. But engagement is trying to understand the work where it is, rather than where you want it to be or where you are. Accessible art is easily appreciated, but that doesn't mean that challenging art cannot or should not be appreciated as well. I'm being too abstract. Let me use a more concrete example. Let's use Michelangelo's Pieta, the most famous expression of the Pieta, Italian for pity, which is a classic Renaissance artistic theme, depicting the body of Jesus in the lap of his mother Mary after the crucifixion. I pick this example for the obvious reason that the film renders its own Pieta portrayal, but let's consider the potential for inaccessibility with Michelangelo's Pieta. If you view it knowing nothing, the scene might seem grotesque, confusing, and a dark mess. Why is this beautiful woman cradling the body of a half-naked, bearded man? Without context, and with a fault finding closed mind, one could begin to attack the piece because of how disproportionately large Mary's lap must be to accommodate Jesus, declaring that an execution error by somebody who doesn't know human proportions or doesn't know how to sculpt them accurately. And given the grave subject, you might condemn the piece as joyless, morbid, and a colossal waste of premium marble and funding. Now, let's take another point of view. Perhaps you have a vague understanding of the story, but you're not personally invested or maybe you're even hostile towards it. You have an issue with religion, for example. Then you might be prone to the politics behind it. You see it as a propaganda piece and you dislike it. Your hostility or skepticism towards the subject matter would undermine that aspect of the work. Now let's try another point of view. Maybe you know the story and in fact, you are sincerely and deeply devoted and you bristle at anyone questioning your devotion. Let's say you are a biblical scholar who finds this piece confrontational. Why? Well, you can cite chapter and verse and you know that biblically the Pieta never occurred and that historically, biblically, and religiously it would have been a practice deemed unclean if it had occurred. Further, by virtue of being his mother, Mary is actually older, but Michelangelo's Pieta depicts Mary with a youthful face. A fault-finding mentality then condemns the work and ascribes motives or mistakes rather than trying to find a reason or understanding. That kind of critic might assume that Michelangelo doesn't know the story, the characters, or how to handle it. That critic might act as if Michelangelo was the first to portray the Pieta without prior reading or reference. However, our final point of view looks upon the work with the greatest appreciation and, accordingly, the greatest reward. 
If the underlying story and reference is of meaning to them, they can look upon it and have a profound sense of emotion tied to the event, the symbolism, and its execution. It's tied to their own devotion and their understanding of the scene. That person looking to appreciate the work with an open mind may know that it's not historically accurate, but tries to determine what the work is saying and tries to find the meaning, and they gain an appreciation for the elements and the execution. The scene is familiar instead of confusing, and they experience empathy instead of disgust, hope within the darkness. Instead of being disturbed by Mary's proportions, they marvel at how Michelangelo brings to life the folds of cloth to hide her figure and convey so dramatic and artful a pose, naturalistic enough even if not strictly realistic. Instead of lamenting the waste of marvel on something so morbid, they marvel at the extravagance of something so specific and meaningful. Instead of declaring, that's not my Mary, and alleging that Michelangelo just wanted to put a pretty face on Mary without respect for the source story, a seeking person does the research, and they realize that Michelangelo was well-versed in prior depictions of the Pieta, deeply devout and clearly capable of casting Mary differently, but intentionally did otherwise. The seeker may learn that Michelangelo gave her a youthful visage to symbolize purity, or found that Michelangelo was well-versed in and influenced by Dante, and loved to reference Dante's clever paradoxical line, O virgin mother, daughter of thy son. The discovery, exploration, mystery, and answers become a part of the appreciation, and that process gets short-circuited and short-changed by short-sighted declarations of incompetence or assumption of error. Every time somebody says, quote, doesn't understand these characters, unquote, without knowing the filmmaker's love and research in this area, they're robbing themselves of an opportunity to understand and appreciate. Now, let me be absolutely clear. I'm not declaring that Batman v Superman is a misunderstood masterpiece. I don't know. What I am saying is that I'd rather be the critic who deeply enjoys exploring a piece by seeking instead of the critic who dismisses everything based on alleged fault. Certainly the film contains choices and ambiguities which can be questioned as intention or error. But to me, Snyder has earned the benefit of the doubt and I'm willing to at least start digging for the intention. Compared to a typical four-quadrant film, Batman v Superman is a very challenging piece of work. And I think I knew that going in, which is why upon leaving, I thought that the film was almost too overt in places. Yet I understand and I accept where a lot of the reaction is coming from. There are so many potential points of confrontation which can cause somebody to choose to reject it. Add to that issues of expectations and subjective taste. It's almost as if with Man of Steel, many were expecting a familiar tuna fish sandwich. But then the filmmakers took the raw ingredients and presented sashimi, a fresh, stripped-down, natural take on where those ingredients take you. Then with Batman v Superman, it's like many people expected either a tuna melt as the evolution of the tuna fish sandwich they never got, or premium nigiri sushi as the elemental evolution of the sashimi that they did get. But instead, the filmmakers presented a California roll, neither the comfort food nor the expert elemental execution, but a translation of the same challenging elements with more stuff in friendly packaging. In other words, in terms of expectation, something that wasn't familiar warm comfort food for the masses, nor delicate perfection for the critical snobs, but something in between and unexpected. 
I'll spare you the statistics on American sushi consumption, but the point is that on taste and expectations alone, it's easy to understand the divisive nature of something like this, with or without fault or even execution errors. For example, the film intentionally carries themes about mortality and death, beginning and ending with funerals, acting as a stealth adaptation for the death of Superman, featuring the Day of the Dead holiday, and providing a thin line between life and death, Bruce's dreams, Zod's resurrection, Jonathan Kent, etc. And some are not going to be on board with a confrontation of their own mortality, consciously or otherwise. People conscious of it and able to have that discussion will get more out of it than the people squirming uncomfortably without knowing why. And again, let me be clear. I am not saying that expectations are wrong or that tastes are wrong, but that they vary and can change over time, and that those can affect the kinds of alleged faults that people are willing to look past. We've discussed shifts in expectation and tastes last episode, and that's why I'm confident that everything is going to be fine now and in the long run. Basically, our approach is as it ever was, to exalt the good and in that discussion address criticisms if applicable rather than look out for or assume flaws or faults. I'm still uncertain how to proceed with the show. Part of me had hoped for universal acclaim, making debate leisurely and merely academic. And instead, it's so charged and needlessly bitter. And I expect that to be tempered by time and subsequent films, adding excitement and understanding for this world. I don't intend to tackle critics as a demagogue or to defend BVS to the death, merely to answer with gratitude the value and appreciation that I derive from it. If the film slate was not moving at such a wonderful clip, I'd take a year off to ruminate and then check back in, but since I don't have the luxury of that much time, I'm out of my depth. With so much ground to cover and so little prep time, I just have to ask you to forgive these unrefined reactions and I reserve the right to revise my views down the road. So for a roadmap on today's discussion, I just want to briefly talk about Superman and explore some of the confusion around Lex Luthor. Believe me, it was all that I could do to trim it down to just these topics, but we're going to look at the world between Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and then talk about the intent arc for this trilogy, we'll see if we can understand Lex Luthor's motives and moves, and finally we'll revisit the humor in the film. So let's get to it. I approached this initially as a Superman fan, and when I left the film I felt that Superman had been honored, and I continue to feel that way. The defining event of this world is explicitly captioned, mankind is introduced to the Superman, and the events of Man of Steel and its consequences shape and frame the entire film. And as somebody who has studied that final Metropolis sequence in Man of Steel so many times, seeing it from Bruce's perspective completely immersed me into this world again. Maybe someday we'll do breakdowns on the added information about powers and weaknesses, technology, and so on, but to reinforce the point about Superman being honored, let's start with a simple, factual status quo. That is, diegetically, within the world of the story, Superman is loved, admired, and seen as a hero, primarily before the incident in Africa. I need to point this out because I've seen many who think that Superman is is still wrestling with the public two years later. And instead, I think the film makes it clear that there was a positive pro-Superman status quo or honeymoon phase, which motivates people like Lex and Wallace to change that. And that's when Superman has to struggle. And if you don't understand that status quo, you're going to take for granted several of the subsequent scenes. So to fully appreciate it, let's just go through some of the countless little examples establishing this world's admirable
iteration of Superman. This is not all of them, but they all reinforce the point of a world that does not fear or hate Superman, thus requiring an international incident. Senator Finch states, The world has been caught up with what Superman can do. That's a statement of the status quo. When Lois raises the hearings and her concerns, Clark is able to initially brush them off because of the status quo. Senator Barrows says, The last I looked, the only one of those Kryptonians flying around here was Superman, as a rebuttal to the weaponization of kryptonite, showing an implicit trust of Superman. We see Wallace's Keefe's apartment papered with Superman's heroic deeds. A headline literally reads, Heroic Superman Rescue, among a half dozen other positive headlines. Keefe takes us to Heroes Park, where Superman's massive monument is a clear expression of the city's gratitude and prevailing attitude, and Keefe vandalizes it with False God, which is meant to negate the status quo and to get others to wake up, as he says later. When Keefe is arrested, Perry proposes the headline, End of Love Affair with Man in the Sky. Thus, the love affair is the status quo. Swanwick accuses Lois of inventing a conspiracy to put back Superman's halo, meaning that a halo on his head is the status quo. Bruce says, Every time your hero saves a cat out of a tree, you write a puff piece. Again, Superman is described as a hero, and favorable puff pieces about him are routine and sell. Status quo. Clark responds, Most of the world doesn't share your opinion, Mr. Wayne. Another explicit statement of the status quo. There's the montage of heroic deeds, the talking heads, and the open invitation to Capitol Hill, and then the genuine excitement when he arrives, described by one reporter as a historic moment. Inside, Keefe says he's not a hero, and Luther declares the need to see Superman as a fraud. Martha says, they see what you do, they know who you are, and then provides a list of positive perspectives, and so on and so forth. There are so many more examples threaded throughout the film in dialogue indeed, in action and reaction, and in characterization. Superman is regarded as a good and trusted hero, even if there are questions and concerns. It's a delicate and tenuous trust, earned by his deeds over the last two years and his commitment to the dream of a farmer from Kansas. But it's there, not just in a line or two, but embedded throughout the whole film. And we have to understand that, because that status quo being upturned is what drives the film and motivates the characters in a logical way. Lex can't stand the public embracing of being that powerful as good, so he sets in motion means to corrupt and destroy the Man of Steel. Lex's actions drive the public and Senator Finch to question what Superman should do, to question his accountability and the consequences of his unilateral actions. Batman, meanwhile, can't stand the hypocrisy of adoring somebody who has the potential for so much destruction and who has already invited so much devastation to them. His trauma and his cynicism turn that potential possibility into an absolute inevitability in his mind. Accordingly, the upset of that status quo drive Lois and Superman. Lois in trying to uncover the source of this sudden sea change and Superman bearing the weight of it all. And on that note, Let's look at a second way in which this film's treatment honors Superman, and that's essentially the weight of this story upon his shoulders. This can be unpacked for ages, but I just want to briefly touch on the overall strategy for Superman, which we can see and speculate on in this trilogy of films, and how they're showing Superman so much respect in this approach. We can sum it up as exploring the significance of Superman, and then seeding Superman throughout. The filmmakers honored Superman by allowing this film to explore these themes with Superman. He's the world-shaking, caption-earning event. 
Much of the drama, weight, and significance of this story comes from Superman's singular status as the world's first publicly powered superhero. The impact of those questions and concerns are established and felt. Put it another way, if we went right into the Justice League and introduced metahumans as a whole to the world, Superman becomes just a footnote. The reason that his actions, his powers, his story is so important is because the filmmakers took time out to say, we're going to acknowledge Superman's role as the one who started it all. And by by virtue of that, he bears this unique burden. In the same way that first contact with an extraterrestrial wasn't simply taken for granted, they're not taking Superman's impact or burden for granted by glossing over it and just jumping into the league. They respected the character enough to shoulder that burden and presented him in a way such that he's the only character that can with the same resonance because of how much he loves humanity and serves them. In this telling, Wonder Woman stepped away from the world, much like her people did in tradition. Batman, Aquaman, Flash, and cyborg are in the shadows. No one else takes on the scope or the scale of threats alone that Superman does, which is why his public existence has world-shaking impact. Structurally, you can't tell this story with the same meaning after the debut of the Justice League, the Amazons, the Atlanteans, and the Metahumans. Superman is the only through line that covers and continues from Man of Steel to Batman v Superman and into Justice League. The film seeds Superman's importance into the future of the franchise, with Flash clearly saying that Lois Lane is the key. The apocalyptic nightmare sequence portents a possible dark future with Superman. Superman's death is the impetus for assembly the Justice League, which is inspired by his example and has to approximate his power. Remember, Superman did his thing for two years and none of the other metahumans stepped up. He had it covered. He was sufficient. So his absence shows his significance and the need to fill the gap. Finally, Superman's return sets him up to be respected and honored and much more angst-free. Batman v Superman allowed the full weight of the questions of power and deity, hope and cynicism land with Superman, and it properly leaves those questions unanswered because they're inherent to human nature. Those questions still remain, but they're ultimately addressed by the Justice League because Superman no longer shoulders the burden alone. He's no longer the sole target for questions and criticism. There's little point to hearings about Superman specifically when those questions can be directed at any of the other League members or metahumans out there. Moreover, the multitude of metahumans and their differences mellows out the issues and exploration of the God complex. With so many powerful beings known to the world and the audience, it finally allows Superman to speak with less worry of his every line being taken as sacred scripture, as the inspiration for the formation of the League and in the light of his sacrifice and power. He's respected, but no longer does the world have to hang on his every word, motive, or action. With an Amazonian goddess and an Atlantean king and an omnipresent and omnitemporal messenger and a transhuman embodiment of information technology in their missed. Among a pantheon of peers like that, not every line of dialogue that crosses Superman's lips has to bear the infallibility of a god. He's just one of several other powerful beings who each have their own differing insights and attitudes. And that means that Superman can simply be himself. His personality can come out, the joy of his service without all the weight of the world. And he no longer has to serve as a religious proxy for how to live your life. Sure, he may say something good or inspirational but so can The Flash, or Wonder Woman, or Batman might even raise a different but worthy counterpoint to consider. Among them, he gets to be just a guy trying to do the right thing.
rather than the impossible expression of absolute morality. In Batman v Superman, Clark knows that there are people projecting those kinds of expectations onto him, and so he's extremely careful and guarded in his communications, sticking strictly to actions that are as apolitical and uncontroversial as possible. The three-film story has been structured to free Superman of the weight of that, and to give us an optimistic Superman when he finally joins the League. If you're looking for Superman to be the expression of moral perfection, and purity, I don't think this will ever happen in this universe, and nor do I think it should. That kind of infallibility dishonors disagreement and denigrates the League. As Senator Finch states, how do we determine what's good? Good is a conversation not a unilateral decision. If Superman is a perfect paragon, that cancels the conversation and it kills the chemistry of the League. Who cares what anyone else has to say? Superman is always right. Who cares what anyone else can even do? Superman can do it himself. The filmmakers have structured a series of films to give us a Superman who is active, optimistic, inspiring, powerful, and respected. A first among equals without being so perfect as to be pointless or so powerful as to be problematic to storytelling and I admire and desire that approach. All that said, if you want a Paragon, the death of Superman is the fastest way to it. You couldn't have Paragon Superman in the Silver Age because the reality was too silly. Even completely godlike power had little to no gravitas because of the context. Sneezing out the stars was more accident than awe-inspiring. And in terms of morality, well, Superman was a good guy, a boy scout, a square, sure, but so was everyone else. Put it another way, a sermon on seatbelt safety from Batman was as much in character as from Superman. To have a meaningful paragon, we needed consequences and distinction. In 1986, The Dark Knight Returns added grit and consequences, and it differentiated Batman from Superman. Instead of buddies on a tandem bike, they were once again separated into dark and light. With the Crisis reboot and Man of Steel, a new reality was forged with the intention of maintaining continuity and consequences. Superman was grounded, less powerful, but more humanly characterized with a recognizable psychology, but still carrying traces of the distinction of light to Batman's dark from DKR's differentiation. Cinematically, Man of Steel did something similar, a naturalistic world with stakes, consequences, and continuity. In such grounded and mundane worlds, however, Superman wasn't an ideal, the icon, the example, exalted for every hero to look at, and nor were his powers on a level which caused the planet to fear or tremble. You see this pattern in the comics and in the 90s animated series. In Superman the Animated Series, Superman starts out as moderately strong and a reasonably good guy. When the Flash or Aquaman encounter Superman, there's no awe or trembling, he's just another meta. So, in the comics and in the cartoon, when did Superman become a moral barometer and respected for his power with the death of Superman, or in the cartoons in the episode Hereafter, essentially a death of Superman adaptation. That's when Superman took on his awe-inspiring status. The death of Superman was a catalyst for placing Superman on that pedestal. In order to justify his return, his special status, his surge in popularity during the grim and gritty 90s, the fandom, the creators, and the comics started to lean heavily into Superman as light distinct from the dark. Additionally, he'd increasingly gain an infusion of Silver Age level powers and trappings to keep up with the Joneses. It wasn't enough that Superman was the first or just good. In the minds of some, he had to be the greatest, the most good, and the most powerful. And then the stories, the creators, the fandoms reflected, reinforced, and repeated this self-fulfilling prophecy. After the return in 1993, he would be 
deified for the next 20 years, essentially until the New 52 reboot. Post-Crisis Superman stature was created by the Death and Return and solidified and crystallized into the religiously infused Kingdom Come in 1996, forever cementing Superman's godlike status in the minds of fans and creators for the next two decades. Morrison's Pantheon of the Gods Justice League in 97, the saintly Peace on Earth, and the humble for all seasons in 98. What's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way in 2001, Birthright and Red Sun in 2003, Secret Identity and It's a Bird in 2004, All-Star Superman 2005, and so on. These handful of titles, this tiny slice of time, has a vice-like death grip on our modern conception of who Superman is. And I love them. Don't get me wrong. They're exceptional stories. However, I don't necessarily love the calcifying effect that they've had on the Superman mythos and fandom. The inflexibility that comes with absolute adoration and expectation. Regardless, these are a significant part of Superman's modern history and where many fans ultimately want to see Superman go, and at least part of the adverse reaction to Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. However, that Superman doesn't work in this real world without the death of Superman. If you're holding out hope for a paragon, the filmmakers honor Superman by bringing us to that point, rather than floundering in the less iconic era between Man of Steel and Death of Superman, or before or hereafter in the animated continuity. Either way, as a Superman fan, it's exciting to keep an open mind and to see a universe-building trilogy with Superman as bedrock. Okay, that's more than enough Superman for now, even though I've barely scratched the surface of the film, which is why I think it makes sense to turn to Lex next. If you want a factual understanding of the film, I think Lex's perspective grants great overall access. A lot of the accessibility issues with this film come from the fact that Lex is operating behind the scenes, and his motives are unknown and unclear until the very end. And even then, by that point, it can be difficult to recall everything that had happened before and how it was a part of Lex's plan. And without bringing together the entire picture, Lex's motivations may seem muddled or manic. So let's try to piece together what Lex knew and when, and parse his decision-making to understand it all better. Let's begin with parents. Parents are, of course, a huge source of characterization, motivation, and more. We won't dive too deep, but both of Clark's parents are tangibly in the film, even Jonathan's parents are referred to, Batman's parents are more of a presence, and Lex, well, we know nothing directly about his mother, more on that in a bit, but we know quite a bit about his father. His father was raised in poverty and under the rule of tyrants. He couldn't afford books growing up, and he had to root through the garbage for yesterday's newspaper. But he came to America and became the Lex in front of the corp. So Lex Sr. realized the American dream, rags to riches, and was self-aggrandizing in placing his first name in the corporate trademark and branding his son after himself. We know from his room that he liked the ostentatious and the old, like a rhino head over the fireplace and an oil painting of the war between heaven and hell. Draw from those things what you will. We know that he routinely drank and enjoyed bourbon or whiskey from Kentucky while living in Metropolis. And we know he abused his son when he was just a boy. Lex says, No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fists and abominations. 
We know that Lex Sr. has passed and that Lex Jr. has taken over. And regardless of his private atrocities, we could surmise that Lex Sr. was respected and had a faultless public face. Lex's antidotes are meant to remain consistent with that illusion. I don't think we have time to talk about all the alternatives, so let's just start with a theory essentially encapsulated in his confrontation with Superman. Lex states explicitly the, quote, problem of evil, unquote, which is a philosophical tool in discussing the interaction of evil in the face of an omnipotent benevolent God. As something literally considered for thousands of years, we won't go into that at all now. Except to say, Lex's rendition refuses to accept that power can be innocent, that you can't be both all-powerful and all-good. Of course, this is just a philosophical position. Believing this alone doesn't mean that you are motivated to do anything. So the next few lines from Lex are key. They need to see the fraud that you are, with their eyes, the blood on your hands. Now, now the cameras are waiting at your ship for the world to see the holes in the holy. Yes, the Almighty comes clean on how dirty he is when it counts. In other words, Lex isn't satisfied with the corruption of Superman or even Superman being bent to his will. To him, it's paramount that Superman's hypocrisy be revealed to the world, that the symbol of Superman die. Our worldview is shaped by our parents and our childhoods, and Lex suffered under a powerful father perceived by all as a benevolent American dream fairy tale. Lex was alienated and abused by the figure of power in his life, and perhaps he was never rescued, comforted, or protected by his mother. We don't know, we just know that he never credits anyone with rescuing him. Maybe he made allegations, maybe she was complicit, but whatever the case, Lex experienced powerlessness and his philosophy of power and evil was created. In adulthood, his father dies, Lex claims the company and transforms it. But imagine his persistent resentment at maintaining his father's secret. He knows his father was a monster. However, he built his fortune and his power based on the kindness of and the kinship to that monster. There is no silver bullet which can free him from his father's influence. So the only way Lex can tolerate the secret? Well, one, his father is dead. And two, Lex is more powerful than his father ever was. Note that he reveals the secret to Superman, but that's a tangent for another time. Okay, so applying our theories to Lex, let's go back to the Black Zero event and imagine how he feels. The BZE occurs, and there's death and destruction and devastation, and suddenly the world is introduced to the Superman. At first, there's no issue. According to Lex's worldview, this is exactly who and what the powerful must be. Engines of evil. However, when Superman is revered as a savior and a statue is built in his honor and Superman continues to save the people and is hailed as a hero, you can imagine, under our theory, how Lex reacts. First, Lex has the existential crisis of feeling powerlessness once again, feeling helpless again a being who challenges his own sense of priority in the universe. The last time Lex felt this way, he was under the abusive fists of his father. Second, this being was acting benevolent, in total contradiction to his own dark theology. Lex knows that it can't be real, that this being is a monster and a fraud, just like his father was. Superman is a monster, and he's the only one who knows it, and the only one who sees it. Yet there's nothing he can do. Superman has shown no weakness 
darkness, and Lex's voice of dissent would be shouted out and down by those building monuments to honor Superman. In his frustration and powerlessness, Lex feels the rage. What's the solution? Perhaps the same with his father. Lex has to change the power dynamic. His father died, and Lex became more powerful. So Lex pursues the only path to power that he knows. Books are knowledge, and knowledge is power, he says. So after the BZE, Lex begins intensive research and information gathering into the supernatural Superman. He has facial recognition software secreted into all surveillance video. He steals top-secret Star Labs research. If he didn't have them already, he develops tendrils into espionage, intelligence agencies, and with the government. Lex is building up his power, so he doesn't feel that same sense of relative powerlessness anymore. And in the process, he discovers other metahumans. He learns the truth behind Bruce and Clark. He comes to understand their entire psychologies, knowing how you let your family die lands or how to hold their hearts hostage. Then, while rebuilding, Lex finds a sliver of hope. Kryptonite. Not enough to mean anything, except to set into motion the search for more. It's no coincidence that the first scene that isn't a Batman flashback is the vital discovery of kryptonite. Everything changes the day that Lex learns of the whale at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, Emerald City. Enough kryptonite to fight back and kill a god. However, with the revelation of the metahumans, it's meaningless to kill Superman if he doesn't first expose him as fraud. If you kill Superman with his halo intact, Superman just gets martyred and other metas will take his place, which in fact is exactly how the film ends. Lex needs Superman corrupted, not simply killed. He needs to destroy the symbol of Superman. We can deduce that Lex must have a motive like this because the alternative is that Superman dies much earlier. With the element of surprise, knowing Clark's secret, and having kryptonite, Superman would be dead if Lex wanted it. Lex doesn't want to just affirm his worldview, but maintain a certain status quo by sending a message with Superman. Lex infuses his intentions with Promethean justifications and considers what he's doing for the good of all mankind. He wants the public to see with their eyes so they're not taken in by frauds. He won't tolerate a living, powerful, good God. He wants the metahumans to know that they're corruptible, can be gotten to, so they don't try to take Clark's place. He wants to maintain his position of power over the planet, which includes his exclusive knowledge. And with those goals in mind, he plans for months. And everything in the film is essentially according to that plan. Okay, with that basic understanding, let's walk through the film to find Lex's fingerprints, starting in Africa. You know this show. I can talk for hours about everything we learn from this. Characterization of Lois, limitations on Superman's powers, but through the lens of Lex, let's explain what's happening. It's a common misconception that Lex staged this massacre in the desert to frame Superman for killing them. And if that's your assumption, you immediately question the ridiculousness of that premise because Superman should be easily exonerated by the cause of death, small arms fire, and Superman doesn't need guns to kill anyone. Going back to the Pieta example of the fault-finding critic, they stop at this affirmation of absurdity rather than consider if their conclusion is questionable. Maybe they made it an unfounded assumption.
assumption along the way? Well, let's point out two such assumptions. First, that Lex was trying to frame Superman for murder, and two, assuming that exonerating evidence would be readily available. Let's tackle the first one. No one sincerely believes that Superman murdered anyone. That wasn't Lex's plan, and it wasn't the result either. If they sincerely believed that Superman killed an entire terrorist cell, would they invite that person into the seat of government power unchecked? Of course not. In fact, Lois directly challenges Secretary Swanwick with that very idea. If he believes that Superman is a murderer, he's free to discard the bullet. And we know that, instead, Swanwick acts as if Superman was innocent and investigates. Okay, so what was Lex's plan then? Lex's goal is to call into question the collateral consequences of Superman's actions for a number of reasons. First, simply to screw with and test the Man of Steel. Second, to provoke government oversight, which he could then leverage into access. And third, to cause the public to question Superman. The public narrative created by the incident is that Superman unilaterally elected to save Lois. Superman's intervention compromises the warlord and destabilizes the region. When the Nairomi government comes in and retaliates against the weakened warlord, the villagers occupied by the warlord become collateral to that conflict. Superman is accused of performing unilateral state-level interventions without the consent or the will of the people. That's Lex's goal, that's Lex's plan, and exactly what happens. Let's look at the second assumption, that evidence would be available, whether the fact that the general's men were shot dead, or that the bullets were exotic, or who paid for these contractors. Remember that Lex knows everything, and he initiated everything at this point. Anatoly Knaizev is armed, informed, and paid for by Lex. Lex knows the CIA is there. That's why and how Knaizev knew to look for and reveal the tracer. Lex is is relying on the exposure of the CIA to provoke the general into taking Lois captive and bringing Superman in. Lex knew that between the cagey movements of these terrorists and the CIA's involvement and the Nairomi government that there would be no exonerating evidence coming out of this event. Note that the tracer implies the difficulty in accessing these terrorists. It is so difficult that the CIA had to use Lois Lane's credentials just to get close, so it's hard to get at the evidence in the first place. Then, the Nairomi government suppresses evidence because because they commit atrocities against the occupied villagers. And then finally, the CIA suppresses and classifies information because from their perspective, it was their agent getting caught, which caused the catastrophe. If there was no CIA, Lois gets her interview and goes home. End of story. No international incident with Superman. That means evidence didn't matter. Not using suspiciously expensive contractors, which Lois notices right away, not using experimental bullets, not their sudden departure, and not even leaving leaving Lois Lane as a witness. Nothing exonerating was going to get out to the world at large. Consider the three pieces of evidence that did get out. First, you have Lois Lane's account. However, as a Daily Planet reporter with known ties to Superman, she's considered biased. Even their ally Swanwick accuses her of inventing a conspiracy to re-establish Superman's halo and her own. Second, you have the experimental round, explicit, tangible evidence, which Central Intelligence suppressed to a degree that even a Secretary of Defense wouldn't go on record to disclose. And third and finally, consider who Congress is listening to. As we've already established, the status quo is that Superman is a beloved public savior with godlike power. If you are going to call that into question during a public hearing, you had better believe that you want the best possible 
possible evidence before entertaining such a serious accusation against Superman. Yet who do they present? What is their best evidence? It's the testimony of a village refugee who can only give a second-hand account to Superman's actions and a first-hand account about the military response. She wasn't at the compound. She didn't see what happened. She only experienced the tragic aftermath. Insofar as Superman is concerned, she is literally a hearsay witness. If the best that the United States Congress can produce is hearsay, it's clear that they didn't get or have access to forensics, ballistics, bodies, photos, or any kind of real evidence. Lex knew that and planned that, and it's not like he's a passive player without his finger on the pulse. Lex confronts Lois about her investigation even before she claims to have proven his involvement, and he's unfazed. His response? Unfortunately, that will blow away like sand in the desert. He's not above a cover-up. And that's why it didn't matter how his mercenaries were armed or how the terrorists died. Speaking of terrorists dying, this is a tangent, but I can't help myself. It's pretty ridiculous to propose that Superman killed the general that took Lois hostage. Eventually, with the home release, we'll frame by frame it and we'll know for certain. But on a conceptual level, the criticism is flawed. Basically, the people pretending Superman put a mere mortal through two bricks walls has a picture in their mind of the general being pushed through as the first point of impact into those walls. You ask them to really imagine the situation and they see Superman either wrapped around the general's waist performing a flying tackle or with the front of the general's shirt balled up into Superman's fists as the fault finder imagines our hero forcing flesh through stone at speed. The problem with either of these scenarios is that they completely ignore and forget about Lois. The entire reason for putting a gun to her head and bringing her close to his body and threatening her life is to use her as a shield to limit his exposure. There is no meaty flying tackle because Lois is in the way. There is no exaggerated push through the general's chest because Lois is there. The only thing really exposed is his head and the top of his shoulders. Basically, very little for Superman to hit, but enough for Superman to grab like an eagle and drag behind himself as he breaks through the walls. As for alternatives, let's consider the relative competence of the critic to Lois. The critic only knows what they've seen in Man of Steel, or they are unfairly importing feats of external continuity. Lois, meanwhile, has known this Superman intimately for nearly two years and knows the score. The two almost telepathically exchange glances to enact the ideal. So if Lois thought it would be a better idea to use heat vision on a device filled with explosives next to and pointed to her head, she probably wouldn't have lowered her hands. We've already talked about this more than I intended to, but the point is that Lois knows the parameters of Superman's powers and what the best course of action is. They both both do. Okay, back to Lex's plans. I don't have time to run all the scenarios, but you can see the plans within plans, contingencies, and fallbacks if things go differently. If we ever do an exhaustive scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of this incident, we'd go through them all, but for now we've got to move on. The next few scenes all tie back to Lex, even if we don't know it yet. The hearing, Lois's apartment, and Batman's first appearance. Obviously, the hearing is precipitated directly from the incident. Mercy sits in the front row of the gallery. From what little we see of her, she acts as an extension of Lex's 
Fox's will. She brings him the senators, Zod's body, Senator Finch, him to Wallace Keefe, and the governor's message. Given how hard it is to get any evidence out of Nairomi, I wouldn't be surprised if Mercy is the one who brings the witness to the committee, just like Lex would feed Senator Finch Wallace Keefe later. Regardless, by her mere presence, Mercy indicates the importance of this to Lex, even if it's something as mundane as arranging a meeting between the committee chairs and Lex. In Lois's apartment, a product of LexCorp is discovered and the hearings and the doubts are raised. And in Batman's first appearance, he's branded a human trafficker who was too low level to tell Batman anything about the white Portuguese, causing Batman to refocus on Knizev to intercept the import of a weapon into Gotham. We don't have time this episode to dial back to the beginning of Batman's motivations, characterizations, and plans, but in retrospect, this should stand out to you. At this point in time, despite deceiving Alfred, Batman knows about kryptonite and knows that someone somehow is intending to traffic it into Gotham, and he wants it. That means that Lex was already putting into motion the means to smuggle the kryptonite into the country. Now, many critics have figured that out, and they reasonably raise the question, well, then why did Lex want an import license? And why did he seem so upset when it was denied? The assumption is that A, Lex didn't need the import license to begin with, and B, Lex is upset by being denied something he didn't need. Let's take each assumption in turn. First, the need for the import license. I think it's clear on the face of it that simply to get kryptonite into the country, Country, Lex didn't need the import license. After all, Senator Finch tells him that she's blocking it, and shortly after, Batman is trying to steal it from Lex's convoy. If we were fault finders, we can take the attitude that this is clearly an error in writing. Or, as seekers, we can consider attempting to reconcile what we know. We know that Lex didn't need the import license to get kryptonite into the country, and we know that Lex didn't have to ask for an import license. Therefore, can we surmise that Lex requested the import license license because he wanted something else out of it besides getting kryptonite into the country. I think that we can, and I think that we can probably put together some of what that is. Remember Lex's big goals. He doesn't just care about killing Superman. It's important to him that there's a different public sentiment towards the Kryptonian. Asking for the import license does a few things for Lex. First, it turns Senator Finch into a barometer of the public perception or a coal mine canary for the reception of his plans. Senator Finch's main position is that the will of the people be heard. Asking her for an import license gives Lex access to the moderator of that conversation to see where she stands or sways. Second, Lex makes a silver bullet argument, which only works if the kryptonite is legitimate and public. If the kryptonite is intended as a deterrent to Superman and other metahumans, it has to be something authorized by the state and publicized. Smuggling the kryptonite means that Lex can't legitimately advertise it as a deterrent. Third, it gives Lex a voice in the conversation. Remember what Lex says to Senator Finch before the bombing. I'm just here to tell my story, that I was willing to finance a Kryptonian deterrent, but a certain junior senator from Kentucky decided to block it. Yes, the chair of the committee on Superman is soft on security. Asking for the import license allows Lex to push that narrative, even if he ultimately doesn't. Not every plan has to come to fruition. In Man of Steel, Zod brings Lois on board in hopes of additional clues to the Codex. It doesn't pan out, but that doesn't make it an unreasonable or unmotivated decision. Fourth and finally, it allows Lex to horse trade with the vice chair, Senator Barrows, granting him access to the scout ship and Zod's body. Without the import license as part of the agenda, what pretense does Lex have for being granted access to those? If it's part of the deterrence narrative, then allowing access as a concession makes sense. But spontaneously granting access just because Lex wants it doesn't make sense. 
I imagine we can come up with other benefits that arise from asking, even if rejected. But you get the idea. A quick way to test the reasonability of the action is to see what if it went the other way. What if Senator Finch approved the import license? Well, that would bring kryptonite into the country. It would show that Senator Finch believes in his plans and ideas. Lex could weaponize and publicize the kryptonite as a deterrent. And most likely, he still gets the access he wants as part of the deterrence theme. And so there's no harm in asking. And one other wrinkle, which still works, is that if Lex actually wants to use the kryptonite without congressional approval, he still has several options up his sleeve. He can steal the kryptonite from himself the same way he smuggled it into the country right? From the congressional point of view, Lex is asking for an import license to bring the Xeno mineral into the country, meaning that he has control and dominion over it in that foreign land. But to smuggle it, it has to go unaccounted for and disappear in that foreign land. So essentially, to the outsider, it was stolen, but we know by himself. Getting the license just means he needs to steal it in country instead of out, or he can get the bat to do it for him. Regardless, either way, the point is that even with an import license and government oversight, he can still manufacture the ability to use the kryptonite at will. Plans within plans, contingencies upon contingencies. On to the second assumption, that Lex is upset at being denied something he didn't need. Well, there are wants and there are needs, and in unpacking the first assumption, I think we've already covered a bunch of wants which would be frustrated by being denied. That said, I don't think we need to tie Lex's aggravation directly to the license. Instead, it appears to me to be much more of a personal issue with Senator Finch specifically. And we can speculate on a couple reasons Senator Finch seems to set Lex off. Strike one, she blocks the license. Strike two, she interrupts him twice, touching him and discontinuing his thoughts. And strike three, she sees through him. Finally, perhaps not an explicit strike, but more of a penumbra over the whole thing, I think there might be a little bit of a one-sided mommy issue dynamic at play, but we'll get into that as we unpack each point. In blocking the import license, Lex sees that he's failed to convince Senator Finch of his narrative. Public perception hasn't completely gone his way yet. Finch is not an ally, but somebody prepared to be a thorn in his side, a barrier to his ambitions. Which is fine. In the grand scheme of things, he has other plans, ways, and workarounds which he wants to gloat about. He gently mocks her with a rendering of the silversmith's ride. The red capes are coming, pointing out the hypocrisy of her theatrical warnings. If there's no revolution, no silver bullet behind it. It's an invitation, a chance for her to redeem herself and say, you're right, these hearings need force behind it. However, Senator Finch doesn't flinch, but instead physically stops his drumming. And Lex is the one who flinches. Lex is obsessed with power dynamics. And here, Finch goes from legally blocking him to physically forcing him to stop doing something the way a mother treats a petulant child. And Lex immediately wants to reassert his power. Do you know the oldest lie in America, Senator? Can I call you June? Later, we learn the conclusion to the question is that power can be innocent. So it's possible that Lex's line of thinking is that the senator's hearings operate on the assumption that Superman is innocent, with no deterrent, no force, no threat behind them, their theater, meant only to encourage the oldest lie. The other question tries to strip away her title, taking her from senator to her familiar first name. But rather than play his games, she doesn't let him finish his point or let his disrespect land. Her peach tea point is that renaming things doesn't change their essential nature. If he wants to call her June, it doesn't make them familiar. She is still a senator, and that doesn't change their power dynamic. The interruption, infantilization, and insult completely infuriate Lex. 
He bears this grudge so deeply that he feels compelled to finish his sentence as his last words to her before her death and taking her reply and turning it literal. Let's go back to strike three. The senator sees through Lex and recognizes his agenda is to create a weapon of assassination, even if he tries to call it a deterrent. I don't want to get too much into it here and now, but Senator Finch performs the part of Pontius Pilate in this passion play on a number of occasions, and this is one of them. In several renderings, the accusations leveled at Jesus tried to appeal to Roman law, claiming that he threatened the taxation of Roman subjects or that he challenged the divinity of Caesar. But Pilate saw through the allegations and understood the true intent was to use Rome as a tool to crucify for violations of Mosaic law. Again, we're not going to get into it, but even without the parallels, we have a stateswoman seeing someone trying to use her. Now, why would this get under Lex's skin so badly? Well, if we go back to his goals, a big part of the plan is to expose the monster, the demon, the devil. Lex calls Superman a monster when he offers his silver bullet solution. Lex calls Superman a demon when branding Martha a witch to die by fire. Lex finishes the scene by calling Superman a devil coming from the sky. This is the gospel that he wants to get out. He has to force the world to make sense, and Superman as savior makes no sense. But Superman is the only example of a public higher power that he has. So much of Lex's motivation is changing the message around Superman. It's part of why he mixes metaphors, but more on that another time. Lex is about the message, but instead of seeing what Lex sees, she sees Lex as he is. And this is hurtful because it gives her power over him. Seeing behind his grand gestures and public mask, it infuriates him because this may have been his dynamic with his mother. Lex's mother didn't expose the threat that his father posed. His mother went along with his father's facade, and his mother didn't side with him against his father. His mother, either by action or omission, or perhaps ignorance, allowed the abuse. And to some victims, this can be more blameworthy than the perpetrator's transgressions. Lex notes that he kept the room just as it was, the magical thinking of orphan boys, meaning that when his father died, he was orphaned, suggesting that his mother had departed prior to his father. Maybe her only sin was to die first and to leave Lex in his father's care. We don't know. But note that Lex doesn't have an issue with powerful monsters. Lex keeps his father alive in his anecdotes, and he maintains this room as a shrine to him. Lex is in awe of the scout ship, and he weeps over Zod, and he feels kinship with Doomsday. Lex hates the hypocrisy of perpetuating power as possibly innocent. I suspect that Lex made the decision to do away with Senator Finch right then and there. Lex's last line practically casts her in the role of his mother, asking whether dad would mind, and once again points out the fraud that he intends to expose, Superman's savior status, underpinned by his fury for her refusal to expose it. On a literal level, it reinforces the idea that even if she's seen through his attitude on weaponizing kryptonite, she still doesn't know all his secrets. Since she's not literally his mother, she doesn't know the monster that Lex's father was and doesn't know whether or how much he'd mind Lex messing with his things. It's a way of saying to her face, you think you see me, but I still have secrets, in a one-sided way that she would never be able to see through. So on a surface level, these tiny little interactions so incensed him that he plots her demise as part of his many other plans, almost purely out of spite. It seems impossible to interpret a jar of piss as anything else. However, we will add on more rational reasons rarely raised later in our discussion. Of course, there is a lot of ambiguity to all of this, a lot of room for interpretation as well. Reasonable minds will differ. But assuming that Lex has decided to publicly execute Senator Finch, Let's look at how that affects his plans going forwards. The next time we see Lex, he's raising funds 
for the Metropolis Public Library. The fundraiser scene is so much fun and has so much that we could unpack, like Lex's speech, filled with themes and motives. Lex considers himself a Promethean lover of humanity, but the film shows you how to love the world through individual intimacy. It is said, love your neighbor, not love all the world right? Superman loves the world because he loves Lois, Martha, Jonathan, and more. Batman tries to love Gotham, but he lacks intimacy. He's left with shallow womanizing and lying to Alfred. Lex says he loves humanity, but to the common man, this is the let them eat cake beat. No time to unpack that reference. The point is, in actuality, he's quite callous and he blows up his closest confidant, Mercy. Speaking of Mercy, let's try to keep focus on Lex's plan and motives. Mercy is on the lookout for Bruce. She's on the red carpet awaiting his arrival. She's watching him move through the crowd and catches him downstairs. So Lex has sent invitations to Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne, and Diana Prince. Given the valet parking, I'm assuming she's not a party crasher. Lex wants them all at this event, and he knows all their secrets. The question is why? What's the plan? Lex reveals it in dialogue twice over. First, he says, you should not pick a fight with this person. Second, he says, I'd love to show you my labs. Maybe we can partner on something. My R&D is up to all sorts of no good. My read is that Lex legitimately wants these two to fight, and that he's selected Batman as his knight, his champion, his Lancelot. More on that later. The funny thing about the second statement is that it's a fallback contingency should Bruce fail to steal his files. In other words, Lex is offering Bruce a legitimate avenue to the same information that he was trying to steal. I'm going to go off the rails again, but look how rich this is with Bruce's character arc and themes. Bruce has branded himself a criminal at this point, so he thinks with a criminal mindset and he can't see the good and the legitimate in men anymore. He sees only the 1% possibility of fault in Superman and not all the legitimate good that he does. He thinks only how to beat Superman into submission in combat and not question him legitimately. That same blind spot shows up in his approach to Lex. Bruce's first impulse is how to infiltrate and burgle like a criminal even though he's been invited legitimately. And then he steals the information even though he's been invited to look at it. Finally, he tries to confront Diana rather than to take Lex up on his offer. He immediately sees through Diana and brands her a thief, but he doesn't see her good motives. Since Bruce can only see as a criminal, he can only see Lex's criminal moves and motives. Bruce is, pardon the pun, as blind as a bat to what's done in the light of day, such as everything Lex does with and in Congress. Getting back on track again, I so sympathize with Lex's lack of bandwidth to convey everything he wants to say with human speech alone. There are so many different tangents I want to spin off on, but plans within plans, we can surmise that Lex selects and intends the files that Bruce obtains in order to arm and equip his Lancelot. Consider what is in the file and what isn't. Viewed retroactively, it's clear that Lex knows that Batman is Bruce Wayne and that Superman is Clark Kent. Yet if Bruce's breach was unintended and unexpected by Lex, why weren't there files on Batman or Superman? Instead, to me, it seems that Lex was providing everything which could precipitate a fight. The files include the specifications for kryptonite, which Batman uses to forge his weapons. The files solve the mystery of the white Portuguese so that Batman can steal the kryptonite. The file also reveals select metahumans, which may serve a couple of motives. First, if Batman were to survive the encounter with Superman, they might act as subsequent targets to hunt and allow Lex to piggyback on those efforts. Lex already knows Bruce's secret 
secret, so why not put Batman to work as an unwitting detective or hunter on his behalf? Anything Bruce uncovers, Lex will know soon as well. Second, it might help infuse Batman with the same sense of theatricality that's so important to Lex. The importance of staging a fight which sends a message to all those hidden metahumans that they aren't to join Superman in the sun. I thought she was with you. To encourage Batman's battle to suppress others like Superman from emerging. It's arguable that Batman actually adopts this line of thinking, because even after learning about the metahumans, he still deems the destruction of Superman as the most important thing that he's going to do. Killing Superman doesn't mean much if other metahumans take his place, so Batman intends for the fight to send a larger message just as Lex intends him to. All that said, I don't know that Lex actually expects Batman to win, he just wants to provide Batman with enough tools that Batman thinks he has a fighting chance and is willing to provoke a fight. We'll look at this later, but I think that Lex wants Batman to win, but he expects Superman to prevail. Why does Lex want this fight? Well, so many reasons, but in part because Lex is about the message, and Senator Finch has turned down his opportunity for spectacle. So Lex is creating one. Fight night, the greatest gladiatorial match in the history of the world. If Senator Finch wouldn't set the stage, he would. Lex is doing everything in his power, short of delivering a box of kryptonite to Bruce's doorstep to make it happen. Lex has created an opportunity for Batman's resentment to be made clear to Superman. Consider this. Whether Clark figures it out during the fundraiser or a little later, note that Superman remembers everything Bruce Wayne said to Clark's face. An alien who could burn the whole place down. Not a damn thing we could do to stop him. A freak dressed like a clown. So Superman knows exactly how Batman feels about him because of Lex Luthor. Lex is legitimately happy and delighted by his handiwork, so much so that he has a slight meltdown on stage, understanding and acknowledging his own paradox or hypocrisy in terms of knowledge and power. He has all the knowledge. He's pulling all the strings. Therefore, he has all the power, which contradicts and conflicts with his condemnation of Superman making him feel powerlessness and helplessness. It's the same sort of paradox that Batman faces in critiquing Superman's lack of humanity and mortality by making him a mortal man and lacking the humanity to see it. Nonetheless, the point is that the plan is premeditated. We transition to the montage of talking heads, showing that Lex's narrative is starting to shape public discourse about Superman, as Lex primes a terrible strike against Superman. Lex bails Keefe out and provides him with the explosive wheelchair. It's not explicit, but it seems that Keefe is unaware of the bomb which makes it unlikely that Lex installs it later. And that means that Lex intended to blow up the hearing at this point in time. The critic might consider this a dramatic and drastic move. They may question, how did he go from socially awkward to mass murderer in mere moments? However, if we carefully consider the context, is it really so radical a reformation? Think back to Africa, the death and the consequences of his order. Human lives are playthings to him. Lex almost can't believe how stupid everyone is around him. The senator thinks that she's stopping him, but in fact, she hasn't. His mineral is on its way. The Batman thinks he's stealing from him, but in fact, he's been gifted those files and access. Mercy thinks that she's his confidant, but in fact, she's an expendable tie to Wallace Keefe. Keefe thinks that he's his spokesman, but in fact, he's just a Trojan horse intended to instigate the Bat. Clark thinks he's disguised and safe, but in fact, 
Lex knows who he is, and at any time, Lex could make Superman kneel or smite him with kryptonite. None of these fools at the fundraiser can see what he's planning or knows who he really is. All of these talking heads are acting as his mouthpieces without knowing that he's pulling their strings and has set their stage. No one has caught on or caught him in Africa. No one would catch him now. Humanity is blind and contemptible, and only he can make them see. Seeing all the puppet strings, knowing everything he knows, Lex is practically drunk on his own power and plots to slay a senator and sully a Superman in a single stroke. Much like the Lex Luthor of tradition, he's lost a little grip. He's more manic and unhinged, fearless in the face of getting caught, because from his perspective, he can see everything that everyone else is missing, and he forgets that he can't see his own blind spots, which an intimate ally might have alerted him to. But Lex is alone in his endeavors, and so he makes mistakes like any supervillain. Mistakes which Lois Lane ultimately sees through. However, at this point, from his perspective, he fully and believably expects to get away with it. As another issue, there's the question of following the funds, which gets raised a lot by fault finders who insist that Batman would assume Wallace Keefe is funded by a larger conspiracy because of the return checks. The idea is that last we saw, Keefe was getting arrested, and then we see him groomed in a suit with an electric wheelchair. With his hard life and without accepting Wayne's victim fund checks, a question should have been raised. Not really only in a pretty petty fault finder mentality. When I would work for legal services and would defend the destitute, even those short on funds and hard on luck would do what Keefe did, manage to be presentable during a public hearing. Keefe is Senator Finch's star witness, paraded before the press. Even if Keefe came in rough and ragged, it's expected that her office would support and supply a makeover to be more presentable to the public. No ridiculous conspiracy theory needed. Just the same practical measures politicians always take and make with regard to managing image. And with Senator Finch and her staffers gone, difficulty in determining if she did what any other politician or reasonable person would have done. Okay, but what about the bailout? Surely there's something there to discover and uncover. Possibly, probably, but not really an immediate concern in any way. Lex is funding alien archaeology in the Indian Ocean. He's got mercenaries and elite military contractors. He's smuggling a xenomineral into the United States to be weaponized despite a congressional block on import. He's stolen and obtained Star Labs research footage and secured surveillance video. And he's broken into Keefe's place. The film has given you no indication that Lex would struggle to pay bail without being traced quickly. Mercy didn't bring Keefe from jail to his apartment. You can see her standing there as Keefe comes from the other direction and looks at her quizzically. Mercy brought Lex there to wait for Keefe. Mercy is the only witness that can directly tie Keefe to Lex, and her testimony is lost in the bombing. Unless you're specifically aiming to find fault, there's no reason to assume that Bruce could reach no other conclusion but conspiracy simply seeing Keefe in a suit, with far more straightforward alternatives. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Lex influences some of the scenes before we get to the bombing, but actually, you know what? We have so much to say and not enough time to say it, so we've got to truncate somewhere, and as long as we're on the bombing, let's just get to it. Let's skip over the provocation of Clark Kent, the kryptonite convoy, and the first confrontation of Superman and Batman, and just get to the Capitol. I so badly want to talk about the tensions and timing and the tricks to locking down the logistics, but it doesn't translate well to audio. We'll come back to it one day. Consider how self-satisfied Lex is on Capitol Hill 
that day. Everything has gone according to plan, and that's how best to understand the scene. Not as Superman's scene as you'd expect through your first viewing, but as Lex Luthor's triumph over the Man of Steel. The scene is in part about setting stakes. Lex Luthor is going to be defeated in the end, you know this. Yet to be a valid villain, he has to win. Otherwise, he's an ineffectual mustache twirler who schemes and plots and plans but accomplishes nothing. This is his win. Unflinchingly cruel and unmerciful, uncompromising and total. As surely as he will extinguish mercy, you know he extends it to no one at the end. It's Lex Luthor's scene, and appropriately, he's not even there in the end. The scene is the entire Superman versus Lex Luthor dynamic summed up. Superman enters, trying to do the right thing humbling himself, immense power restrained, about to change the world with his words. Yet Lex robs him of it. Without even being in the room, there's nothing for Superman to punch. There's no one for Superman to fight. Yet Lex has broken him from afar, using manipulated pawns, satisfying his own vindictive desires, and hurting innocence in the process. It's the culmination of Lex as a genuine threat and villain. This puts Lex on the path to being the ultimate Superman nemesis, and separates him from Batman, who many casually lump together with Lex as a similarly brilliant, powerless billionaire. But this film clearly characterizes and separates Batman as the one who goes directly at the problem with his fists. This Batman doesn't care about Superman's secret identity, and he would never think to turn others into pawns, versus Lex, who considers everyone a pawn he doesn't hesitate to sacrifice, and who never comes at Superman directly. At this point, Lex has an intense loathing for this junior senator from Kentucky who won't bend to his will like the Jolly Rancher sucking Senator Barrows. This scene shows how insanely dangerous Lex is if he feels unhinged from worrying about consequences. Everyone was looking forwards to Superman saying something. The expectant crowd, the newsworthy broadcast televised worldwide live. The excitement is palpable even in a professional journalist's lines. And here he is. Superman is here. He's actually at the United States Capitol. This is a really historic moment, and we expect that Superman will give some kind of statement to the Senate, to the American people, and of course, to the world. In world and out, people wanted to hear him speak. Many critics of the scene wanted Superman to say something uplifting and inspiring, to coddle the audience into feeling better about him. But that undermines the entire point of the scene. This is Lex's triumph, completely robbing Superman of his voice, breaking his will, and showing just how dastardly Lex is. And we get to see the total impact of that on Superman subsequently. Had Superman got to say his sweet nothings, we, the cruel and unforgiving public, might have felt kind towards him for a second or pitied him for a bit, but then we would have immediately turned on him as a hypocrite, shallow and weak, when the natural devastation of what followed hit him, right after saying such hopeful things. If you've read Civil War, at one point Captain America gives a stirring speech about never surrendering, whatever the cost, which awes a recent turncoat Peter Parker. Yet just a few issues later, Cap surrenders because of the cost and is condemned by his own words as a coward. Man of Steel and Batman v Superman are justifiably skeptical of platitudes. Allow Superman to spout them then, and we'd crucify him for his lack of conviction, when reality came crashing down. Speaking of crucifixion and continuing the passion play parallels, Christ didn't defend himself before Pontius Pilate either. In that account, although urged to speak, to answer his charges, or to address his critics, Jesus gave no reply and gave no answer. Wanting to quote-unquote fix 
this scene with an inspirational Superman is to me like trying to change Jonathan Kent's death to be clearly good, noble, necessary, and unambiguous, such as in the rescue of a child, a heart attack with no intervention possible, or with absolutely no ambiguity about what the right thing was. In other words, to make the death worth it and easier to swallow, which completely misunderstands the point. It's not about making you feel better or more comfortable with his death. It's about the impact that something that unclear, muddy, uncertain, and tragic had on Clark's character. The ridiculous refrain that Clark needed to know the limits of his power ignores all the in-film characterization already establishing that lesson. In the same sense, this scene isn't about making us feel good about Superman for a moment. This story should support and follow its truth, not coddle the audience from any smear to Superman. By staying silent, Lex is magnified as a villain, and Superman is sympathetic in his retreat. Superman doubts if the idea of Superman is ever going to work. It works only because he hopes and believes in the goodness of mankind, so he isn't looking for evil. But if mankind is this inherently destructive, hateful, and evil, they'll never accept him and never join him in the sun. His mission is pointless. So Lex's move kills Senator Finch, it wipes away the witnesses to his involvement, it crushes Superman's spirit, and it makes the public even more concerned about having Superman around. Even if he didn't directly cause the bombing, if people hate him that much, to cause that much collateral damage, wouldn't you consider keeping your distance? It was jarring, unexpected, but it was also Lex Luthor's master stroke. Plans within plans, contingencies upon contingencies, more on that later. For expediency, we're going to skip over the raid of Research Park, except to say that in our theory, this was part of the plan, to push the bat over the edge into taking the kryptonite. Consider the insight into Bruce's psychology and motives to send a note saying, you let your family die. Lex knows Batman and Superman intimately, on an intellectual level, even if it never moves his heart. And the next time we see Lex, he's using Zod's fingerprints to access the Kryptonian scout ship. It's easy to consider this access an editing error. Lex had Zod's fingerprints far earlier, before his import license was blocked, before his fundraiser, before the bombing and having his kryptonite stolen. We want to link the two, because if there's a lock and you have the key, why wouldn't you use it and go in? Moreover, the difficulty in understanding Lex's motives make them easy to dismiss as madness, and so we want to move Lex's entry into the scout ship earlier to justify just how unhinged Lex becomes before the bombing. I absolutely understand that impulse. But we opened this show by saying that we were going to try to understand the story as it is, not how we would make it. Instead of assuming a problem, if we explore it as intentional, we can get additional insight into Lex's Lex's motives and actions. First, let's start with relatively universal observations. Consider the fact that the very first and only thing Lex does with Zod's body is to slice away the fingerprints. That means that certainly in that moment, he had entry into the ship as part of the plan, and his maneuvering and demands for the body in the first place suggests that it was probably part of the plan all along. So insofar as wanting entry into the ship, everyone is right that Lex wants that. It's a desire, a motivation. If you're a fault finder, your tendency then is to assume it a storytelling error, that Lex doesn't act on that motivation immediately and enter the ship. However, if you're seeking, you might remark at Lex's patience and persistence in foregoing something that he wants until an opportune moment. You would look at the timing of his entry carefully and consider if there's some reason that Lex can and does enter the ship 
then and not before. Let's quickly look at our checklist of milestones that happened in between. Well, the import license wouldn't have affected it. The fundraiser wouldn't either. Having his kryptonite stolen the night of the bombing doesn't seem to matter. But then there's the bombing. Isn't it interesting that ship access occurs almost immediately after? What's so interesting about the bombing? Well, think way back to the beginning. Who gave Lex access to the scout ship to begin with? That's right, the vice chair to the subcommittee on Superman, Senator Barrows. That deal and that access was granted based on the ambiguity in Superman's stance and the potential need for deterrence. Note that that access was graduated and came in steps. For example, consider the fact that Lex had to ask for access to Zod's body. Sending a sliver of kryptonite to Amrid wasn't a hall pass in and of itself. The committee permitted access to the ship, not entrance, and allowed testing of Zod's body, not taking. Access, not entrance, testing, not taking. In other words, the senators were still gatekeepers who could still keep Lex out. Senator Finch proved that by blocking his import license and seeing through his agenda. Lex was sure to be under additional scrutiny anytime he'd access the ship after that. It's one thing to say that you can be around the ship or to study Zod's body. It's another thing entirely to say he's gonna go in it and to learn its secrets exclusively. Had he tried, the senators would have stopped him, or he would have to share the secrets within. And to make matters worse, Superman was going to speak. Should Superman convince the country that he's not a threat and that no deterrent was needed, Lex would find himself on the losing side of that sentiment. Going in hot and saying they're soft on security once everyone loves Superman is the surest way to see his access to the ship refused and revoked. And so a new layer and motive is added to Lex's masterstroke strike against Superman and the subcommittee. 35 dead, dozens wounded, and no one left to stop him or say no. The bomb removed his oversight, and it stopped Superman's speech from taking away his access. If anything, by associating Superman with the bombing, Lex would be granted even more access and leeway to quickly come up with an anti-Kryptonian deterrent, especially since officially his kryptonite never made it into the country. It's no accident that Superman doesn't get to speak, and that Senator Finch gets blown away, and then Lex enters the ship to take in all of its secrets alone and exclude. Exclusively. The timing is exactly right, and it aligns with all his motives. It shows the precision of his planning, his patience, and how far back everything was orchestrated. It helps turn Lex from an indecipherable madman to a calculating criminal mastermind. Granting the story the benefit of the doubt rewards you with more interesting characterization and nuance than just dismissing things as editing errors. As much as Superman takes on Christ-like symbolism, Lex Luthor is very much his opposite for all time. It's no accident that the deleted scene bears the title in the caption, Communion, which can be taken as a religious rite. In everything up to now, Lex has been a villain, a criminal mastermind, incredibly evil, but still grounded and mundane and mortal. Yet when he enters the scout ship, he is confirmed, he is baptized, he bleeds over a sacrifice, he summons, he communes, and in the end, head shaven in devotion, he prophesizes. Lex is transformed and transcends into a super 
villain, where his evil has supernatural significance beyond just what normal mortal men can scheme or achieve. Again, we're focused on Lex's motives, so we have to, one day, come back to everything that we're learning from the scout ship, how things operate, Jesse Eisenberg's incredible performance, the set design, the amazing recreation of Zod's body, etc. But I bring up the religious transformation because of how Lex's motives now transcend the mortal realm. We can't rely on purely self-interested calculus to rationalize or make sense of his decisions, desires, choices, and actions. It's important to understand that Lex is now willing to die for his cause as Superman ultimately does for his. Before entering the ship, consider how his knowledge made him strike out at the seat of government without hesitation. And from the ship, we learn that he has access to the accumulated knowledge of a hundred thousand worlds. Who knows exactly what he learned and how, but I think Man of Steel shows a number of mind-machine interfaces which may have allowed Lex to absorb much more than you'd expect. Remember that Jor-El was wary of Krypton's influence on Kal-El, so even if he had such a way to inform him, he would have tread lightly rather than dump a massive download of data into his son's mind. I don't know that Lex would respect or regard those kind of safeguards any more than he acknowledges the council's decree against deformity. At a minimum, Lex learns two things. One, how to create Doomsday, and two, whatever is embedded in his cryptic last words in the film. That a signal has gone out, it has been received, and the hungry recipient is coming. I want to dive into these, but I just realized we're only at the midpoint of this film, and I don't think I have the endurance to make it through all my notes and all my thoughts on this. So let me try to streamline this as much as possible. Um, learning to create Doomsday aligns with his motives, and it's not simply for the sake of plot convenience. Lex states, I cannot let you win to Superman, and that Doomsday was born to destroy you. While Lex had the kryptonite, he could have killed Superman at any time, but exposing Superman's hypocrisy and slaying the symbol was a higher priority at the time. Well, now that Batman has the kryptonite, Lex is all about the plans within plans. Even though he gave the Bat a fighting chance to kill Superman, what if he wasn't strong enough? So the first natural line of questioning for Lex, how could he defeat or destroy Superman with what he had at his disposal, right? And that leads to learning about Doomsday. And as we've said from the beginning, much of Lex's motives have been shaped by learning about the metahumans. Again, so much of what he's doing is meant to send a message to them to stop Superman from becoming an example to them. As we've said, an assassinated Superman without corrupting him first makes him a martyr and inspires other metahumans to take his place. So given Lex's motives, it's completely natural that he should ask, what else is out there? What is the most powerful thing in the cosmos which might come to our humble blue planet? After all, what good are all of his machinations against Superman if they're usurped by stars full of similarly powered paragons just waiting in the wings? And so naturally, Lex learns. And ding, 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 ding. Again, not merely mechanical convenience or contrivance, but the kinds of questions you'd expect Lex to ask based on his motivations and characterization. A quick side note, it's important to point out that the scout ship has Ansible technology, that is, the ability to communicate faster than light. If it didn't, Zod would never have arrived on Earth in our lifetime, much less mere days after the activation of the distress beacon, which would have went off whether or not Kal-El ever went to Earth. The scout ship was discovered by the military, they still 
would have breached the ship, they still would have fought the sentry robots, and still would have set off the distress beacon, regardless of Clark. Okay, <laughs> that's a digression within a digression. Anyways, the point that I'm getting at is that means that the scout ship need not be limited to information from 20,000 years ago, necessarily. So, Lex having access to contemporaneous intelligence about something coming in the here and now, and not many millennia ago, is consistent with the technology and the story. What Lex learns makes him insist on bringing Doomsday to life, which means that Lex has started the clock on the entire endgame. Once Lex decides on Doomsday, he knows he's living on borrowed time. He's outside of the Dead Senate's supervision for now, but that all ends as soon as unusual activity from the crash site draws energy from the city, bringing about a total blackout and causing terrorist activity to be suspected. Once Lex went down that road, he had given up on all guile and was expecting the world to see what he was doing. And again, that understanding is critical to see that Lex isn't melodramatically monologuing to Superman because he thinks he isn't going to get caught. It's because he has abandoned all fear of exposure. He knows the world is going to tie him directly to Doomsday, and he doesn't care. From Communion, it's clear that Lex didn't care. Remember what Batman's threat to him in prison is. I'll be watching you. Lex's retort is to smile and say, but the bell has already been rung. He doesn't care if he's watched, caught, or caged. Whatever Lex learned made such fears and concerns beneath him, to the point that a searing brand brandished by the bat is bravely met with a smile and psychotic prophecy. Lex is loosed from the fear of death, the fear of pain, and even defies his father's magical shrine by inverting a certain painting. Why exactly does Lex not care? Well, we don't know, and that's completely okay for a film that's part of a larger franchise. It's entirely acceptable for a longtime villain to have hidden agendas and mystery surrounding them. In fact, it's practically expected for mastermind types in serial storytelling. Seven Star Wars films and the Emperor is still an enigma. At least that's my interpretation. Some have theorized that Lex believes that he can control Doomsday. Or you could argue that the Kryptonians must have dealt with Doomsday in the past, so surely Lex would have learned that contingent and been ready to stop Doomsday subsequently. Maybe, but I'm more inclined to think that Lex simply doesn't care and that's consistent with his worldview. But we're skipping ahead. And this is part of the problem, bouncing back and forth. It's hard to pick a systematic angle of attack when there's so much new material to dive into and digest. I just want to quickly review what Lex wants from Batman fighting Superman and why he selects Batman as his knight. And a quick aside on that, a critic has claimed that Lex has no perception of time as he looks out at the bat signal and says, the knight is here. And it's clearly been evening for a while. In a fault-finding mindset, you have no idea why Lex would say N-I-G-H-T hours after it arrived and simply chalk it up as error. Slightly more familiar with context might claim that it is a reference to the Dark Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, but consider it an unearned reference. But what about the Seeker? Instead of assuming that it's an errant line or an unearned reference, why not give the film the benefit of the doubt and consider why Lex would choose that word? Well, what is a knight? A knight is a soldier, a vassal, a champion, a chess piece, someone who does the fighting for you. And why does Lex want somebody to fight for him? Why doesn't Lex do it himself? Lex has already tarnished Superman in the eyes of some, the angry burning his effigy in the streets. If he hadn't provoked Batman into stealing the kryptonite, couldn't he just kill the Man of Steel now? Well, he can, but not with the narrative that he wants. Remember that, officially, his kryptonite wasn't allowed into the country. If Lex kills Superman, he can't publicize the death with a responsible party, a symbol to stand in for humanity. Sure, he can kill Superman, 
Superman from the shadows in an assassination, and Superman would be dead. But that creates a question into who did it and how. And the narrative becomes about the conspiracy and the mystery around the assassination and the acquisition of the kryptonite, rather than the triumph of man over a fallen god. By using Batman, Lex is assured that Batman will be theatrical. It's in his essence. Batman isn't about sheer utility. He wears a bat costume. He beams his symbol into the sky. He leaves calling cards, brands criminals like the Mark of Zorro, and he likes to make an entrance. Batman's predictability extends to his fighting style, which favors direct engagement, which means that Lex can rely on Batman to actually fight Superman and not simply plot Superman's assassination in a one-sided way. Batman represents the mortal man, as Lex says in his litany, God versus man. If Batman can destroy the Superman, then Lex can promote the outcome. God is as good as dead. The Batman will be blamed for bringing the kryptonite into the country, and his example shows that mankind can and will crush any metahumans that dare appear. Should Batman turn around and hunt Lex? Well, he really isn't a problem. From Lex's perspective, it's as easy to erase Bruce Wayne as any mortal man. In this sense, Lex wants Batman to win, to prove that man prevails over God. But he suspects that Superman will stop Batman because that's the obvious outcome. Assuming for a moment that Lex finds nothing in the scout ship and never learns of Doomsday, I don't think he kidnaps Martha or throws Lois off a building. Without the ticking clock of Doomsday or Darkseid, he sticks to his long game and he lets Batman dictate the pace. If Batman kills Superman, fine. If he doesn't, then the gambit fails. He sacrifices his knight, but there's still plenty of game to play at Lex's leisure. It's not like Batman is going to say to Superman, Lex Luthor sent me. Like in the comics or in the animated series, Lex simply moves on to another scheme to denigrate and to destroy the Man of Steel from his position of a legitimate businessman. Lex is unexpectedly patient if you consider how long he sat on what he knew before putting his plans into motion. He was willing to wait until they were possible, until a catalyst would appear, until a sizable chunk of kryptonite could be found. For Lex, entry into the scout ship is another similar catalyst, another sea change that completely transforms his plans from what they were to the necessity of creating Doomsday. Doomsday became Lex's endgame. Again, he knew that he was going to get caught. There's no way to hide the energy that the ship would draw or the destruction that Doomsday would wreak. Prior to entering the ship, Batman v Superman was an end unto itself. But after learning the ship's secrets, Lex makes Doomsday his priority. If Lex doesn't go through with Batman v Superman, and if Batman or Superman isn't sucked into the theater of fighting one another, then one of the superheroes or both stop Lex from completing Doomsday. Superman just responds to the blackout comes to the ship and stops Lex. The point of the egg timer, the hostage situation, etc. is to occupy Superman until Doomsday can finish cooking. And this gives Lex two bites at the apple at killing Superman. Either the bat is strong enough to kill Superman or Doomsday is guaranteed to do so. What exactly did Lex learn or see that turned him from wanting to see Superman disgraced than dead to wanting Superman dead quickly at any cost? We don't know. I'll share my theories in a bit, but it's a mystery for a franchise film. Note that Luthor's confession to Kal-El comes after he's already initiated Doomsday, so much of that hasn't shifted or changed. His theology or doctrine of gods and powers and goodness still seems sincerely held. 
However, it's suddenly become more urgent. Lex moves on Martha and Lois to accelerate the conflict and gives Superman a cause to fight. He throws Lois off the ledge to show he's serious and has no hesitation in leveraging their lives. Lex still wants the spectacle and the disgrace. Now the cameras are waiting at your ship for the world to see the holes in the holy. Yes, the Almighty comes clean about how dirty he is when it counts. He's a twisted televangelist, but what's his gospel? Simply that God is good as dead. At least the concept of a powerful and benevolent God. Instead, power has to be evil, destructive, ravenous, angry, and corrupt. Lex's message is that inside of all of us and out there among the stars is deformity, ugliness, destructiveness, and rage in direct opposition to Superman's message of hope, rescue, and adoption. To Lex, a world with a savior Superman doesn't make sense. So until he enters the scout ship, everything is about him trying to force it to under his worldview. Superman is supposed to be something else, something sinister. So he does everything in his power to take his only public example of the supernatural and to represent it to the world in the way he sees it. As a fraud, a false god, a devil, a demon, a monster. As a helpless child, Lex had to live in the shadow of a monster that everyone else thought was a saint. He had to sit and suffer in silence under his father's secret, and that same hypocrisy was being revisited upon him with Superman. Superman was perceived as an angel, but all he had to do was fall. After all, the devil was nothing but a fallen angel that came from the sky. And Lex did everything he could to show that Superman isn't holy, Superman is dirty, then Superman could die. Yet, it becomes irrelevant once Doomsday is available, the devil, because the even more powerful Doomsday directly makes the point. Without pretense, the purity of the message with Doomsday ends Lex's existential crisis. It is his message incarnate. No need to twist its image or to contrive controversy or to dirty Doomsday under duress. To Lex, there is no God, only devils. Power can't be innocent. He did his best to turn Superman into one, but when presented with Doomsday, he could make his ideal devil exist. Even if Superman wouldn't show himself to be a fraud, Doomsday still lets Lex shout his message from the top of his lungs. Simply existing and appearing before the world was enough for Lex. Others would put together the pieces and understand that this is what power ultimately looks like and is. True power is Doomsday, not Superman. Doomsday is Lex's prophecy about Superman, about each of us, about the stars, for Earth. And Lex just wanted the world to see it, which is why he doesn't care if he dies, if he's caught, or if it defeats Superman and keeps rampaging. The instant Doomsday is born, Lex has accomplished his mission. That's why there's no concern or contingency for what happens after creating Doomsday. Lex is fine with power, even greater than his own, so long as it isn't innocent. When Doomsday's hot breath roars over him, he revels in it because this is the truth. The most powerful thing on earth, rampaging and raging, aligns with his understanding of power. It means that everyone will see how terrible it is, how evil and destructive, and Lex is no longer alone and silenced. Lex has finally been heard. God is good as dead. Maybe. There's certainly a ton of room for interpretation with respect to Lex, and if you differ, all the better because it brings more possible avenues of appreciation to the table. There is so much more we could say, but we've got to wrap this up. As we said from the outset with our Pieta example, appreciation means diving deep, and the fact that there is effort in that isn't a defect any more than the inability to appreciate fine art or advanced literature without education is. And despite the length of all this analysis with all the supporting detail, it's actually fairly 
fairly simple and straightforward to summarize. Essentially, because of an abusive father, Lex believes that a benevolent, powerful god is wrong, and therefore he hates the idea or symbol of Superman in that sense. Before Lex has enough kryptonite to mean anything, he clung to the only power that he could accumulate, knowledge. And so he learned Clark's secret, and he uncovers the metahumans. Once he learns about the metahumans, it can never be just about killing Superman, who he could have killed any time after the discovery of Emerald City. Why? Because all that would do is martyr and glorify one god to be replaced by another. And that's why Batman, a man, is Lex's knight, and why Lex is obsessed with changing the narrative around Superman. He's trying to make a god a devil before killing him. It's to send a message to all the other metas to stay in the shadows, until he finds an even better example that God is dead in Doomsday, a more powerful devil. The irony being, of course, that Superman defeats Doomsday, and is martyred, and brings together the Justice League because of it. The only reason Lex is at peace at the end is because he doesn't know that Batman is going to assemble the League. I've seen the film at least seven times, and each time I see something new, I've done everything I can to burn the IMAX version into my brain, because who knows how those will be reproduced in the home release, and man, I am rambling. <laughs> okay, we've talked about everything. From an approach to criticism, to the strategy with Superman, to trying to unravel Lex Luthor's plans and motivations. And with that much dense, intricate discussion, I just wanted to end on a lighter note, namely a survey of the film's humor. And to me, I was surprised how much the first act is loaded with it. Honestly, I could watch a six-hour version of the first act, the character and world building, bringing all the pieces together. And obviously, humor is subjective. And psychological research tells us that so much of an experience comes from the finale and how we leave the theater. But it seems unfair to call Batman v Superman joyless or humorless, even if the jokes didn't land for you. And even if it wasn't a laugh a riot minute, there was levity and laughter laced throughout. Since I've already already been talking way too long. I'm not going to explain or justify my qualifications for humor. Feel free to agree or disagree. This is just a short summation as I see it. So one, Superman slaves Lois. Two, how about you don't shoot the good guys? Three, Clark joins Lois in the tub. Four, Bruce and Alfred trade barbs. Five, Lex and the Senators. Six, it's Cherry. Seven, Russian ballerina. Eight, water is wet. And coach. Nine, the red capes are coming. 10, you've got balls. 11, an empty wine cellar. 12, those are nice shoes. 13, clowns dress as freaks. 14, you should not pick a fight with this one. 15, stand for something. 16, dramatic wheelchair turn. 17, apples don't cost a nickel. 18, Bruce and Diana spar. 19, did you get the rock? 20, click his heels three times. 21, do you bleed? 22, Granny's Peach Tea. 23, Batman's Calling Card. 24, yes I would. 25, don't I know you? 26, Lex's Loaded Wordplay. 27, every time we say goodbye. 28, Batman's email to Wonder Woman. 29, well here I am. 30, punches losing power. 31, I figured the cape. 32, I've been busy. And 33, I thought she was with you. Okay, I know I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time.
You're the answer, son. Feeling just a little bizarro The way he smiles when he helps with his sorrow Now I know I may seem cynical But he's not making miracles Nobody asks why he's here, we just praise him He's only helping cause we're here and we'll praise him And once we stop, he'll be gone And I'm heartbeat stopping Just consider that he's not The hero that we want Or the hero that we need He just wants to watch us bleed When we're gone, he'll move on Too much trust is never a good plan Treat him like a superman I'll set them free from his tyrannical hold My body's strong, but my ears are cold Everybody wants to love him and they do I just want to show them all the ugly truth Something about the way he smiles when he flies Trying to figure out a way to bring him down for a while He never wants He never needs He never dies He never bleeds and Maybe once they see you'll agree Too much trust is never Cold. You're the answer, son.